HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register now for PASA's 2024 conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Don't miss over 70 educational sessions on farming and food systems, plus an expansive trade show. Learn more at pasafarming.org slash HRN2024. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're talking about the third leg of the meat industry stool, um, and that is uh, a conversation we're going to conduct with John Rumpler. John directs Environment America's efforts to protect our rivers, lakes, streams, and drinking water. John's areas of expertise include lead and other toxic threats to drinking water, factory farms, and agribusiness pollution being those threats, um, algal blooms, fracking, and the Federal Clean Water Act. We have a lot to talk with John about. Um, and he previously worked as a staff attorney for Alternatives for Community and Environment and Tobacco Control Resource Center. Um, I didn't include your private business there, John, just because. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. This is a, a first for me to really talk about the sort of you know, like I on this show, I talk a lot about water resources and water pollution from um, agricultural uh, toxic uh, chemicals, including from the from the meat packing from the meat industry, meaning you know concentrated animal feeding operations, as well as all of the corn and soy that is grown in the service of those creatures. Um, but I don't often talk about slaughterhouses and meat processing facilities and their impact on water quality. So I really appreciate you uh, weighing in on this. Now, first, before we get started, what is Environment America? I have never heard of that organization. I've been doing this a long time now. Where have you guys been? uh katie first of all it's really an honor to be on your show thanks for having me here thank you Uh, environment america is a national environmental advocacy organization with citizen members all across the country from alaska to florida we have affiliates in 30 states we work on clean air clean water promoting the transition to 100 percent clean energy and of course protecting what remains of um, America the Beautiful and our our, our natural you, you know resources. So we work on a wide range of issues. We work with people of all and any political stripes for common sense solutions uh, to protect mm-hmm. our environment and public health. 
Wow. I, I, I don't know why. How long has Environment America been around? I don't know why I haven't run into them before. Yeah, our network of organizations has actually been around since the 1970s. Wow. Um, and the Environment America, officially in the name Environment America, has been around since at least 2007. So I'm sorry we haven't crossed paths, but uh, we've been busy. 2007, wow. But now, but now we have, and now, and now that I've glommed onto you, my friend, <laughs> you're in for it now, buddy. I got a lot to talk about here. Anyway, let's get into the meat of this because today, in fact, is the very day in which the Environmental Protection Agency um, is uh, having the first of two public hearings about some new regulations, um, which I read about in something called the New Lead, which is one of my favorite new uh, resources for information. And so these new regulations are aimed at reducing water pollution from slaughterhouses and processing and rendering plants. Again, not something I've talked about or even thought much about before. So what, first of all, what prompted this initiative? Was it like people like you writing in? I think I saw like there was a letter signed by 100 different organizations. Is that what prompted the EPA's review of these regulations? Well, what should have prompted EPA's review of the massive pollution from meat and poultry processing plants is just doing their job under the Clean Water Act. Uh, the Clean Water Act requires EPA to update pollution control standards for each industrial sector on a regular basis. Because mm -hmm. remember, when our nation passed the Clean Water Act in 1972, uh, we said overwhelmingly that we wanted our waterways to be safe for swimming. That's what it says right in the law. Wow. And in order to accomplish that goal, uh, Congress directed EPA to constantly review technology to control pollution so that that pollution could be ratcheted down. And mm -hmm. that includes this slaughterhouse sector we're talking about today. Unfortunately, EPA had not reviewed the standards for meat and poultry processing plants since 2004. Oh, and that's wow. just for the big ones. For right. the smaller operators, EPA had not reviewed the standards since they were first set in 1975. Oh my gosh. And those are only standards for the facilities that directly dump into our waterways. Mm -hmm. There are thousands of facilities that send their wastewater to our sewage treatment plants expecting we, the public, to pick up their mess. Those mm -hmm. are not regulated at all currently. Wow. That's astonishing. So, and yeah, also so, what's astonishing oh, is that the huge amount of what it represents is, is so much waste um, that it's kind of like breathtaking that these um, small municipal plants can actually manage that uh, volume of effluent. I mean, well, the truth of the matter, is, yeah, Katie, the truth of the matter is that they can't. Uh, right. There's a large percentage of sewage treatment plants that are regularly in violation of their Clean Water Act permits for mm -hmm. a whole host of reasons, mm -hmm. but certainly receiving hundreds of millions of gallons of wastewater from huge industrial meat processing plants doesn't help matters. Uh, right. It's a huge load of pollution that can cause water quality problems. Sure, absolutely. But to get back to your question about how did we get here, right? unfortunately, EPA has dropped the ball or had dropped the ball under successive administrations since 2004. Um, 
In 2016, 2017, we went after one facility in Florida that was clearly violating their permit, even as loose as the standards were. That was the Pilgrim's Pride plant in Live mm -hmm. Oaks, Florida, that was dumping into the Suwannee River. Mm -hmm. We reached a settlement with Pilgrim's Pride. And to their credit, the company you know, agreed that more than a million dollars from that settlement would help farmers reduce their pollution. So we started looking around at the rest of the sector. And lo and behold, we found that there were a ton of these facilities that were pouring pollution into our waterways, but very few of them were in violation of their permits because the pollution control standards were so loose. Uh -huh. So that's when we joined with several other organizations and petitioned EPA and said, please, EPA, we urge you to do what you're supposed to do under the law and update these pollution control standards. Uh, we had 102 organizations come together in 2019, urging the agency to take that action. They refused to do so. And so we and these other organizations went to court. Oh, wow. And we we urged the, the federal you know, judge to enforce the Clean Water Act and make EPA do its job. Fortunately, wow. with the new Biden administration, um, EPA came to the table and agreed in a negotiated settlement that they would propose a new rule and finalize that role, rule by August of 2025. So we're seeing the first step of that commitment as EPA has now rolled out its proposed update to these slaughterhouse pollution control standards, which under the Clean Water Act have a super wonky name of effluent limitation guidelines or yes. ELGs. So that's <laughs> what they've proposed are updates to the effluent limitation guidelines for the meat and poultry processing plant sector. Right. I was reading some of the, I, I read quite a bit of that document, um, the proposed revisions. <clears throat> and the, uh, I have to say that the, um, keeping track of the acronyms was really, you really need a, a, you know, a spreadsheet to manage it. It was absolutely astonishing how many acronyms there are and how frequently they pop crop up in the text of this thing. But that's for only for wonky people like you and me who are willing to read 275 pages of text around EPA regulations. But not everybody has to do that <laughs> because we're here to tell you about it. So now first, before we go on about this, I want you to talk about a little bit about um, just what are these pollutants? I mean, we don't really think about the, what's coming out of a slaughterhouse or a meat processing plant or a rendering plant. We don't think of that as a major water polluter, but yeah. it is. So first, tell us what, what are the pollutants that are being discharged from these plants and what are well, their impacts on you know, human health, water quality, the environment, you know, all of that good stuff. As you might imagine, uh, a facility that processes, you know, thousands of hogs or cows or chickens or what have you, you're going to have blood and guts and urine and poop and oil and grease and fat and pathogens, right? Yeah. All of yep. the things that come from dead animal carcasses. Um, these pathogens can include antibiotic resistant strains of E. coli because mm -hmm. we know that the industry often uses antibiotics on its animals, right? So you wind oh, yes. up with antibiotic strains. So that's a public health problem. Yeah. So that's the thing that most people would intuitively imagine like, oh, of course, a facility that's, you know, processing thousands of animal carcasses, of course, they're going to have blood and guts and pathogens. 
and you know all of that gross stuff that we don't want anywhere <laughs> near our rivers or places where we get our drinking water or go swimming. For real. Those are huge problems, but volume-wise, the even bigger problem are nitrogen and phosphorus. Yeah, why is that? I was so curious about that. I mean, I think of nitrogen as phosphorus. These are these are what we put on our our cropland uh, to you know to fertilize soy and corn and other crops, obviously. But those are the big ones. But how do they play into the processing part of this? Yeah, you're absolutely right that nitrogen and phosphorus do make things grow. If you think about it, you know most living animals and things. Nitrogen and phosphorus are a big part of what, what makes us up. Like that's the chemicals, that's mm. the natural elements that are inside our bodies and the bodies of, of all of these animals too. So that's why it comes out in the waste stream. Why is it something we should care about? Well, your point is correct that nitrogen and phosphorus make things grow. And that's terrific when it's your plants in your garden or it's crops on a farm. But when it's in the water, and it causes algae to grow, that's a huge problem. Right. That's a huge problem for two reasons. One is sometimes this algae is toxic. So you've probably yep. heard about these toxic algal blooms where, you know, literally it can contaminate drinking water as has happened in Western Lake Erie in Toledo in 2014. They had to shut off the water there. Yep. Um, we've had, you know, instances of people's pets going into the water and becoming very sick or dying. Oh, sure. Uh, this toxic algae is no joke. It is highly toxic, like like as in bioweapons toxic yeah, in some right. instances. So that's a huge problem. But even where the algal outbreaks are not toxic, even if it's just ordinary algae, what happens is when you have massive die-offs of algae, it sucks all the oxygen out of the water. So that's mm -hmm. why if you look at the Mississippi River, which, you know, drains two thirds of the continental United States with rivers flowing and all of the corporate agribusiness pollution, not just from slaughterhouses, but from factory farms, et cetera, et cetera, flowing all the way down into the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico. We now have a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico that is somewhere between the size of the state of Rhode Island and the state of New Jersey, depending on the year. And yeah. what do I mean by a dead zone? I mean an area of the ocean or the water where there is so little oxygen that fish and wildlife cannot survive. Right. And Which... it's not just in the Gulf of Mexico. There's a huge uh, concentration of, uh, of livestock operations, particularly chicken, in the Chesapeake Bay. Yep. And there's a dead zone uh, in the Chesapeake Bay that's been recurring for decades. Yeah. So that's why nitrogen and phosphorus, which sound like very friendly things for your garden, are not <laughs> things that we want in overabundance in our rivers, lakes, streams, and bays. Yeah, well, it's definitely a point I've made a lot on this show, I have to say. <laughs> These things are bad. Fertilizer yeah, now, is bad. <laughs> and Katie, let me just say, you know, you're absolutely right from your prior shows that a tremendous amount of this nitrogen and phosphorus comes from factory farms themselves. But EPA itself readily admits that meat and poultry processing plants are the largest direct industrial source of nitrogen into our water. Incredible. I, I find huge. that amazing. Absolutely incredible. The other thing that struck me, um, I guess, in the article that led me to you 
uh, in the new lead. But um, the, the the pollution that is being discharged, um, you know, often is uh, these facilities are sited in low income areas, and so the brunt of the pollute of the impacts of pollution uh, on the local communities tend to be people of color uh, or just low-income folks in general because they don't really, you know, have the organization and the, you know, wherewithal, whatever, to fight these enormous corporations. And believe me, we all know how big they are. I mean, these people are buying and selling our elected representatives um, and have done for decades. So uh, how is how is a small community <laughs> going to come together to fight against that? You know, it's just like you cannot get away from it if you are in a lower income community and one of these right. uh, facilities is sited nearby. Now, let me ask you this, John, do you have numbers on how many pounds of toxic waste are being discharged into our waterways by these businesses? Um, well, I don't know that I have numbers that I would call toxic because technically nitrogen is, is not is toxic, not Okay, toxic, but, um, but we do have some numbers um, that, According to, to uh, what the industry itself reported to EPA in 2018, these slaughterhouses released actually 55 million pounds of toxic substances directly into the nation's rivers and streams. I had forgotten when you asked your question that we do have data from EPA's toxics release inventory that is specific just to the toxics discharges including not nit all nitrogen, but it does include nitrates, which I'll get into in a minute. Okay. And, and in 2018, that was 55 million pounds of toxic substances that these slaughterhouses directly dumped into our nation's rivers and streams. As opposed to sending them through to some municipal wastewater treatment plant. That is, Those you know, volumes are even greater. Much, much greater. Yeah, I just want to make that point that we're not talking about, you know, a, a sort of negligible quantity here. It's like staggering. But, you know, when you process, for example, I visited a slaughterhouse many years ago um, in Colorado. They were slaughtering 4,000 or processing 4,000 cattle a day, 4,000 a day. So let, let me ask you this, John. I know that in this, uh, these proposed uh Revised, revised regulations, which we're going to talk about in one second after the break. We're going to take a short break in a second. Um, but um, in those, they they break it down between sort of um, like the volume of animal flesh that is processed in each one. So it's like there are cutoff points. Where are the big cutoff, cutoff points where the regulations are more strict, for example, for say a Smithfield plant than they might be for, you know, Paradise Locker Meats in, in, in uh, Kansas City. You know what I mean? Like yeah, there are, there are some cutoffs uh, that are about the volume processed and then mm -hmm. there are other cutoffs that are about the volume of wastewater generated. I see. Um, but let me just say that no matter which way you look at it, the cutoffs are wildly generous to industry in what EPA is proposing. Uh, there are a lot of facilities that would not have to curb their pollution at all. To put things in perspective, there are five more than 5,000 meat and poultry processing right. plants in the country. Uh, EPA claims that uh, over 3,800 of those um, are, are dumping pollution either directly or indirectly into our waterways. EPA's proposed rule 
would only apply new standards to 845 of those. Right. We're so, going to talk about that in a second. I, we're going to, let's take our quick break here for a sponsor drop, and we're going to come right back. We're going to go through what is the EPA actually proposing and why it is that out of over 5,000 plants, only 845 are going to be subject to these new regulations. So stay tuned for that, people. We'll be right back after this sponsor drop. Want to cultivate farms and food systems that nourish, heal, and empower? Register now for PASA's 2024 Sustainable Agriculture Conference. Discover resources, services, and products at our expansive trade show, and explore more than 70 educational sessions on climate-smart practices, food justice, soil health, and more. Featuring a dynamic lineup of speakers, including Reginaldo Hasle Marroquin, farmer and founder of the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance and CEO of Tree Range Farms, and Reverend Dr. Heber M. Brown III, pastor, community organizer, and founder of the Black Church Food Security Network. Find your community at PASA's 33rd Annual Conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 8th through 10th. Register now at pasafarming.org slash HRN 2024. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash HRN 2024. Okay, so if you're just tuning in, which you're not, because this is a podcast. <laughs> I like the way you did that, John. That was cute. Um, if you're just tuning in, uh, which not unlikely since this is a podcast, but anyway, we're talking to John Rumpler, who is uh, the lead attorney for um, for Environment America, and he is the director of water quality issues there. And uh, as you will soon find out in coming weeks and months, John and I are going to have a lot to talk about. But at the moment, we're talking about slaughterhouses, processing facilities, and rendering plants, and new rules that the EPA is, or rather revised regulations that the EPA is proposing. Now, first of all, let's talk about the fact that there are three options that they are presenting, but the one that removes the least amount of effluent is apparently the favorite. So can you tell us what the three options are? And then why is that one the golden rule? Huh. Uh, I wish I could tell you that, but let's talk about <laughs> option number one. Um, to, to EPA's credit, option number one, which is the least restrictive on the industry, would still result in a significant pollution reduction of 100 million pounds of less pollution going into our waterways directly or indirectly from 845 facilities that would face these new standards. So, right. you know, it's a good step in the right direction. Excellent. It's certainly better than no improvements that Correct. we've seen since 2004. Right. So, you know, I don't want to say that what EPA is proposing is insignificant or not good. It's just that our rivers, lakes, and streams demand better. And yeah. we know that the Clean Water Act requires EPA to do better. Right, right. So the other two regulations basically would remove more effluent, but they wouldn't target more of these businesses. It seemed like 845 plants was kind of the magic number for all. Oh, oh the third option, I guess, included smaller plants as well, right? But that's not popular because that would mean that they would yeah. have to so invest money. So there's options money. two and options three. So, mm -hmm. so option two, you're correct. Option two would also only uh, relate to 845 out of 300, uh, you know, 3,800 of these facilities that, that pollute. Um, but it would result in somewhat greater pollution reductions because it would um, it would apply nitrogen and phosphorus pollution limits at least for 
the larger plants. So that's right. option two. And then option three, which is the only, you know, the most stringent option that EPA has studied and presented, would regulate uh, more facilities, twice as many facilities, six, 1,620 meat and poultry processing plants out of the 3,800 or so that, that do pollute our waterways, and it would result in 322 million pounds less pollution flowing wow. from those facilities. So more than triple the pollution reduction than what EPA is proposing right now. Right. But they would never, I mean, I, I think I sent to you last night, and I actually meant to read it again this morning, but Meat and Poultry News, the American Meat Institute, of course, is already begging for a stay. They haven't studied these options enough. This is going to have a, pro, you know, this is going to make problems for them, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly what you would expect from the industry. Um, and I'm sure, uh, actually, John, you're testifying today, are you not, in front of yes, the EPA? And, and in front of, are there congressional members in that hearing as well? No, this isn't a congressional hearing. This is a public hearing EPA. that EPA is, is to get public comment on their rule. Um, you know, I imagine that the industry will trot out the same tired arguments that we hear every time yeah. any industry is held into account for the toxic crap that they dump into our waterways. Right. Uh, this is going to be a job killer. This is going after right. America's way of life. This is a bunch of, you know, radical extremists that don't want you to eat meat. Or at the very yes. least, uh, this is going to, you know, add to the price of your hamburger, uh, right. you know, in, in an era of inflation. You know, they'll definitely try to make this a hot issue politically for the Biden administration. Yeah. All of that is nonsense in right. our view. Um, you know, just for the record, I, I eat meat. I, I enjoy a good hamburger. I enjoy a good steak. Um, yeah, same I, here. You know, I, I, I enjoy, uh, I'm an omnivore. So- um, but I think that we need to, you know, raise our food in ways that don't poison our water. I, that, that seems like, you know, common sense to me. I think um, so. <laughs> and, you know, I, I guess I would argue that if the price of a slightly cheaper chicken nugget is dead fish, toxic algae, and people getting sick when they go swimming, you know, I, I just don't think that's a trade-off that's worth it. Um, I'll, I'll pay five or 10 more cents for a chicken nugget uh, if we're not going to have thousands of dead fish and uh, right. people getting sick from from swimming or their drinking water. Right, right. Or having their pets poisoned or whatever. Can you tell us, can you describe a little bit about the technology that they use now to capture these pollutants? Because in some cases, the EPA document that I read was like, well, some plants are, you know, hitting above the standard. You know, they're doing way better than the standards even require. And so we don't really have to go after them. You know, it's it's it sounded like there are some plants that do a pretty good job and others that don't do anything. Can you sort of give us an idea of the range of technology that's required to filter out some of these uh, products from the water system, from the wastewater, and then whether or not people are going to have to invest in a lot of new technology to meet the standards that the EPA is proposing? Sure. I think the first point that you made is the most important one, which is that there are already industrial meat and poultry processing facilities that are voluntarily using available technology to curb their pollution. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like we're asking the industry to reach for the moon here. 
We're right. asking them to use available control technology that some plants are already using to filter out these pollutants. And that's exactly what the Clean Water Act requires right. is that facilities use available control technology. That's how we're going to get to uh, our goal of having all of our waterways safe for swimming and fishing. So that's an important point that EPA made that some facilities are already um, showing that this technology is viable, cost-effective, can be implemented, whether it's filters of certain kinds. You know, it depends on the pollutant, whether it's nitrogen or phosphorus or the blood and guts and pathogens that we were talking about. Mm -hmm and so forth. Another thing we didn't talk about earlier in terms of pollutants is we also have to walk, watch out um, for chromium and detergents that are yeah, used to Yeah, I was going to say, we didn't talk about chlorides. I mean, isn't yeah. that what we're talking about, that whole class of chemicals? Because I know they use a lot of ammonia. I know they use a lot of mm -hmm. chlorine in those plants. And, so and go ahead things, and talk about that. Those things can also pose problems for wildlife and aquatic ecosystems. And then there's yet another problem. You know, we talked about nitrates being uh, a problem. Nitrates um, not only can contribute to den zones and algal outbreaks, but they also can contribute to blue baby syndrome. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they can interrupt inf infants um, and their uptake of oxygen. Right. Now you could say, well, yeah, but that's no big deal because when the water flows down the river to the, to the, um, drinking water intake. They treat it at the drinking water plant before it goes to your house. Well, that's okay if you're on a municipal water system. However, in order to remove those nitrates, oftentimes, and, and those pathogens we were talking, I should more those pathogens we were talking about, the nitrate removal is really expensive. The pathogen removal involves um, using chemicals that create disinfectant byproducts. Oh, great. And those toxic disinfectant byproducts can then be a health hazard as well. So you have follow-on effects here um, that, I, that I forgot to mention earlier. Right, But in right. any case, the main point is the technology is out there. Some of the plants are already using them. Um, they're competitors that are failing to... Uh, control their pollution are actually gaining a competitive advantage over the ones that are being responsible, right? So sure. really in fairness, not just to clean water and public health, but even just in fairness to the industry, we don't want to reward the worst actors that are dumping the most pollution. Right. We should level the playing field for the facilities that are actually already voluntarily using available technology to curb the nitrogen, phosphorus, pathogens, and other pollutants flowing into our rivers. Right, right. So that, I mean, that is to me just so illuminating right there is that these rules are not saying you have to invest millions of dollars in a new filtration system or a new water treatment system in every single plant. It's not even close to that. It's just employ the existing technology that you're already supposed to have in place. And well, that- there, me yeah, I, yeah I, I, Katie, I do want to say there will be some facilities that will need to invest in, in adopting technology that others are already using that they mm -hmm. have failed to invest in. I see. And that, that might cost them some money for sure. Well, let's, let's, I mean, I don't have the figures in front of me, but last time I checked, you know, some of these, the big four 
uh, in all the categories, whether it's uh, Tyson, Smithfield, you know, all the, whether it's the big four chicken, the big four beef, the big four pork, uh, their profit margins are so <clears throat> out of control. <clears throat> it's like, you know, this is why they don't have to worry about lawsuits being brought against them because they have the deep pockets that allow them to litigate just the way Trump does, you know, just drag it out and drag it out, appeal after appeal after appeal. They don't care. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's for most of these people, it's literally, uh, you know, a fraction of their massive profits. One thing I did want to ask you about, John, <clears throat> what about oversight? Like, Obviously, there hasn't been a lot of oversight. Um, but going forward, should these rules pass and should these revised regulations go into effect, how will the EPA, uh, you know, perform that oversight? Well, the way the Clean Water Act works, Katie, is that EPA sets the standards. And mm -hmm. then in most places, the states write the permits. So the states are required to use those national permit standards in setting the pollution limits for each facility based on that available control technology. So right now, those permits are very lax because we don't have these effluent limitation guidelines updated since 2004. The impact would be that once these rules pass, then every time one of these permits comes up for renewal and they're supposed to be renewed every five years, mm -hmm the state permitting agency would then have to look at the new pollution control technology mm -hmm. and say to one of these facilities, uh, Cargill, Tyson, Smithfield, or some lesser known name, hey, you actually have to ratchet down your pollution substantially because the new pollution control standards show that you can and must do so. Right. And then there's the further matter of... <laughs> Once the new pollution limits are met, making sure they're enforced, right? Right. Um, you know, making sure that the facilities are, in fact, not dumping more than they're supposed to. And that's where, you know, the Clean Water Act does have a pretty good feedback mechanism on at least direct dischargers, i.e. facilities that have a pipe where they're literally dumping right. their stuff right into a river. The plant manager has to sign off on penalty of perjury about the amounts of pollution that their facility is dumping into the river. And that's why it's it's um, where the political will is there. Uh, yeah. Enforcing these permits isn't rocket science. You know, you, you look at what the facility itself says they are dumping into the water. And oftentimes they're just admitting in a signed document that they are violating their permit limits. <laughs> hundreds, if not thousands of times. And that's why one of the most brilliant things that, um, that the Clean Water Act did, overwhelmingly passed by Congress, was give citizens the right to go to federal court and sue these polluters when they violate their permits, if the state fails to take action. Because oftentimes, as we know, state and local officials are a little bit too close to polluters and, sure. Or their industry, you know, or their agencies have been underfunded and they lack the resources to bring these cases. So yes, that's where citizen suits have been such an important part of this, not just for meat and poultry processing plants, but really for all kinds of polluters that are pouring uh, nasty stuff into our rivers or into the air we breathe. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So let me ask you this, John, because we only have a few minutes left. I don't like to go too much past 35, 40. Um, 
Do, do you think that these rule changes are going to, I mean, I think we've already agreed that they don't go far enough. Um, but what what more could be done? Like, I'm assuming that if we, if these rule changes get through the, pro, you know, the whole process that they have to get through and they're not delayed, you know, ad infinitum by the meat industry, you know, there will be an incremental improvement. And then will that, this be something that we can build on? Like more, what more sort of regulations would you, you know, as an, as an environmental activist and as a lawyer like to see, um, you know, as we progress through the next half of this century? Right. I think there's a lot more work that we're going to have to do, Katie, to rein in the enormous amount of pollution from industrial livestock production. Uh, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, factory farms themselves are a huge source of this pollution. Terrible, the yeah. Massive acres of uh, commodity crops grown to feed these animals and the runoff pollution there is, is just astronomical. But even with it, with these meat and poultry processing plants, beyond EPA setting pollution control standards and permits ratcheting down the amount that's directly dumped into our waters and indirectly sent to sewage treatment plants, there are some other things we need to do. For example, we need to have really stringent limits, if not outright bans, on land application of this wastewater. Yeah. I mean, imagine if the facility says, hey, okay, you know, we're going to capture all of this stuff, and instead of dumping it into the river, we're just going to spread it on acres <laughs> of cropland. Well, we right. all know what happens then. It rains, and all of that pollution then flows right into the river anyway. So sure. that kind of a backdoor loophole is something that EPA can't really address directly through this rule but state and local officials really need to uh, rein in on this land application problem. A second thing we're going to need to do, if, quite frankly, is have a moratorium on more expansion of meat and poultry processing production, particularly in places where the water is already wildly polluted. Right. Uh, you know, we're never going to reach a clean Chesapeake Bay. We're never going to end the dead zone. Uh, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, if we just keep piling on to the problem with more and more of these facilities. And, you know, I got to tell you, with, with these meat and poultry processing plants, it really is a case of if you build it, they will come. Oh, sure. You know, they build a huge facility that's going to process uh, 100,000 chickens, uh, you know, a day. <laughs> Yeah, you can be sure you're going to see a lot of CAFOs raising chickens springing up within 30 or 40 miles of that facility, oh, sure. yeah. adding to the waste problem. So those are some additional things we're going to need to tackle in the years on, uh, even if we get EPA to adopt the strongest uh, pollution control standards in this rule that we can. Right. <laughs> you know, let's talk for a minute about where, I mean, um, you know, really where these areas are concentrated. So we have in the Midwest, for example, Iowa being, you know, pig capital of the country, basically, Iowa and North Carolina. But unlike North Carolina, Iowa has not put a moratorium on building more CAFOs, whereas North Carolina has apparently successfully done that. Um, what other parts of the country do you feel are, are most at risk from this type of pollution, specifically from the slaughterhouses? Well, a lot of them are are, are concentrated. Um, some of them in the south, um, as yeah, you mentioned, chicken, North, Car a lot North of Carolina, but also in the yeah, south, Georgia. Yeah. Um, there are some facilities in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. 
some in the Great Lakes watershed, um, certainly, you know, the Mississippi River watershed. Um, you know, we, we, we see them in, in a pretty widespread arc across the country. Yeah. In other words, this is a national issue. This is not something you can just kind of say, well, it's not in my backyard, right? It's like, Correct. you know, this is pretty much, if you don't live in the Northeast, you're going to see a lot of these facilities. We're lucky here, you know, in one way that we don't have them. On the other hand, I'd like to see a couple more slaughterhouses in this area because then we're not buying meat from, you know, the Midwest and California, you know, right. we don't have the supply chain issues that we had, which of course were completely drum, you know, drummed up nonsense from Tyson at all. But anyway, I mean, I, I find this whole thing, the whole issue of water and our kind of, uh, you know, sleepwalking into a, a major water crisis in this country, not just from this industry, you know, with the three legs of the stool that we've talked about, the the corn and soy production, the CAFOs and the slaughter plants, but also the other topics that you and I are going to go to uh, in in future broadcasts or podcasts here, um, such as your work on uh, lead in our water pipes, you know, not just in Flint, Michigan, but I know, for example, in Providence, Rhode Island, I live in Rhode Island. So in Providence, the old pipes from the street into the houses were all lead. And those are all owned by private citizens. Now, I understood that the Biden administration was making a rather concentrated effort to get the to get the lead out. Um, but we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about um, you know forever chemicals in our taps, another place where you know we've just been sleepwalking into poison water, and we're seeing these enormous uh, increases in cancer and various other types of chronic uh, and terminal diseases. What what you know? Wh- where do you? What's your in the hierarchy of where to go in terms of trying to clean up our waterways, John, where, what's your what's your lodestar, and what are your other sort of lower or lesser uh, urgent um, uh, topics, shall we say? I don't know what else to call it. You know, sources. You know, Katie, I've been doing this work for a while, and I, I think rather than just being dictated by the science, I, I don't know how I would be able to evaluate uh, whether. Uh, CAFO pollution or fracking or PFAS or lead uh, (laughs) is the worst threat to our health. Uh, Here's what I do know, is that poll after poll shows that Americans of all political stripes care deeply about clean water. They want clean water. Their drinking water, their rivers, their lakes, our streams. And I think that as we just see opportunities to politically organize and create the political will for decision makers to finally do what our nation resolved under the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act decades ago, we have to seize those opportunities and focus on those. Right. So the science is there for all of these things. I didn't mean to say we're not guided by the science, but you know, endlessly, you know, spending time trying to decide exactly which of these things is is the worst threat for giving us cancer <laughs> right. uh, might be irrelevant if there's no politically viable path forward for dealing with any of them. You know, the, the good news is that even despite our fraught and fractious political environment, we are seeing some progress on lead. We have seen this proposal on meat and poultry processing plants. Um, we are seeing some action on PFAS. Certainly there's much more that needs to be done but we are moving the ball forward for cleaner water. Right. John, thank you so much for that. Um, If people want to learn more about your work and what you do, tell them where they can find you and find more information about these issues. 
absolutely. EnvironmentAmerica.org is our website. So go to EnvironmentAmerica.org. And, uh, you know, I dare say my email is jrumpler at EnvironmentAmerica.org. So <laughs> if yeah. listeners want to contact me directly with questions, I, I, uh, I welcome that, I think. Um, I think, right, right. Yeah, we hope not, <laughs> but you know, whatever. Yeah. We hope for the best. Yeah. Um, hey. And we'll be talking further, John. I want to say also, um, what was that? I wanted to, Never mind. Doesn't, I've, I've lost my train of thought, but there was one more thing I wanted to say about you, but I guess I'll wait until the next time. So you'll be back. We'll talk about lead. We'll talk about PFAS and we'll talk about preserving our water. Oh, I know what I wanted to say, which is that the public commentary period there is a public comment, you, which John will be participating in today, January 24th of 2024. Um, but there is another in-person public comment, which is January 31st in D.C. And then there are written public comments are being solicited by the EPA. Um, you can go on to their website to find the issue around uh, – to find the uh, the exact place where you can issue your written comment about these rules. Um, but I urge you to do so in the deadline for that is March 31st of 2024. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Katie. Let me just say that um, in the next week or two, we will have a petition for members of the public to sign on to if they want to comment on this rule. Obviously, people can write up their own comments, but if, if they don't have the wherewithal to do that and they'd like to sign on to our petition, mm -hmm. uh, we'll have something... Uh, on our website in the next week or so. And then for organizations that are concerned about this, we'll have a more detailed organizational comment letter so people can contact me for that as well. That's great. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks always to our sponsor for supporting this radio show. And thanks for listening, people. I appreciate my audience more than you can know. See you next week. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.